Today we're starting a series that we're going to continue for the rest of this month. The title of the series is Blessed. Can you say blessed? This word, blessed, is one of those words that we use so much. And when I say we, I don't even mean Christians. I've heard so many secular songs that speak about the blessings of God. Bless is a common thing. People will say I'm blessed, right? If you sneeze, someone will tell you bless you, right? That's the response usually. But what does it actually mean to be blessed? Even on your seats, you would agree with me that you cannot exactly give it a definition. Can you actually say, okay, when, when you say someone is blessed, this is what you're saying, you might be able to describe what you mean. But to give a concise definition of the word blessed, what it means for somebody to be blessed, you might, you might struggle a bit, a little bit. You might. And if you do not struggle, then you're probably a better man than I am because I struggled <laughs> when I tried to think about it for a while. But I decided to take my roots from the Bible. And I decided to find out exactly what it means to be blessed scripturally. And I realized that the word blessed and the word happy in Greek aren't so different. In fact, they have the same root word. They have the same root word. It's just that there was a relationship between two of them, so they didn't exactly mean the same thing. But the word blessed and the word happy, not so different in the Greek, in their root word. And I kept on just, you know, finding out more, looking at different resources, trying to figure out exactly what it means to be blessed. And the next thing I found out was that blessed in ancient Greek was used to describe someone that was great. And when I, when I talk about greatness, I'm talking about greatness that can be seen through external attributes. So the person is rich. The person has outward prosperity. The person is a prosperous person. So it was a word that was reserved for the fortunate few. And that's the connotation of the word happy too. In that happiness had something to do with luck in the ancient Greek. Like you have to be fortunate before you can be happy. Because happiness also had a relationship with external factors. So essentially, this word blessed was a word that was used for a select few people. Not everybody could call themselves blessed in the ancient Greek. Not everybody could call themselves blessed in those times. Not everybody could say, oh yeah, I'm blessed. 
Because if you were blessed, people would be the ones that will tell you. Because there are external things in your life, essentially, that would show them that, yeah, this one is blessed. Probably you have estates. Probably you're a merchant and you're able to you excel in business. Probably your wealth came from familiar ties in that you inherited something from a good father or a good mother. Either way, there's a level of fortune or luck that is usually associated with that word blessed. So you can't just call anybody blessed in these times. If you say someone is blessed, then you know what you are saying. So imagine how it must have felt for the people that Jesus was speaking to in the book of Matthew chapter 5. When he started to say, blessed are you when this, blessed are you when that. And that's our root scripture for this series. So can we turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew 5? I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I can imagine that there were so many people around Jesus that day People of low estate, people that were not particularly rich or wealthy. Probably there were even slaves there who had masters, right? Who were serving with a master. Even if you don't want to make those assumptions, which you can say are true, at the very least, you know that there are four fishermen there who Jesus pulled out of their lowly trade and told to follow him. The idea of calling them blessed must have been revolutionary and strange to them. Because prior to this time, nobody used this word except you were speaking about something that could be seen outwardly. Except there was a clear distinction in riches, like this person is obviously wealthy or this person is obviously prosperous. This person has money. This person has substance. That was the only time 
that somebody will be able to use the Greek word. Essentially, what that means is that person is happy, right? The person has no needs because his needs are basically satisfied. So imagine them hearing from Jesus that there is another way to actually be blessed. Just imagine it. Because Jesus did not just give them another viewpoint of blessing. By the time he was done with this sermon, because this sermon lasted from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And the part that we are considering for this teaching is what we popularly call, popularly call the Beatitudes, right? By the time Jesus was done with this teaching, he wasn't just emphasizing that there is another way to be blessed. He was also saying that this is the blessing that is of the most importance. Because even that English word, beatitude, means perfect blessedness or perfect happiness. Jesus was speaking to them about blessing and equated blessing, which is the highest measure of their fulfillment in life, with their relationship with God himself. So from Jesus' perspective, a man that is blessed is someone who has reached or attained his highest state of fulfillment in this life. Which, in earthly terms, has to do with material things alone. But what did he do? What he did was he equated it instead with a man's relationship directly with his father. Essentially, he was telling the fishermen that were there, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, that these are the conditions for blessing. This is what it means to be what? To be perfectly fulfilled in your life. Imagine the slaves that would have been there. Slaves that had masters that were probably mean to them. Imagine a slave boy or a slave girl listening to Jesus and listening to him talk about blessing. And he will look at himself or herself and say, well, like, can I truly be blessed? Because what they understood blessing to be at the time wasn't this. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means to be blessed. And we're dividing this into three categories. Today, we're going to look at the first. And the title of today's topic is, It's a Heart Thing. Can you write, It's a Heart Thing? Can you say to someone, It's a Heart Thing? Or it's a thing of the heart, whichever one. Because we were going to find out that the first four things that Jesus mentioned here have to do with the state of the human heart. And it's not just the state of the human heart in salvation, that someone who is saved. It's also the state of the human heart, the state that the human heart has to get to before they can receive salvation. Because you see, 
The Bible tells us that if you believe in your what? In your heart and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and Christ and God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. That is salvation, but it involves what? The heart. But before a heart can be said to have believed, some things must have happened. Sometimes those things happen instantaneously. Sometimes it happens when somebody preaches to someone. It's the Holy Spirit that does that thing to that heart. But someone just doesn't jump into belief. There are some things that have to happen to the heart of a man before he can be open to receive salvation. And those things must remain in the heart of a man to maintain salvation. And we'll start with the first one. And it says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you check what it means, if you check what this spirit means, this spirit here actually is speaking about your soul. So there are some translations where you, it, it calls it the, the rational spirit. The rational spirit, which is the seat of human feelings, desires, and thoughts. Which is what? Your intellect, your emotions, and your decisions. That's your will. And it says, blessed are those who are poor in what? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until a man experiences poverty in his soul. And I will explain what that means. They cannot be filled by the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to tell you some of the things that fill up a man's soul that prevent the gospel from coming in. There are some people that in their soul, they are rich in religion. But they have no relationship with God. But they are rich in religion. I'm not even talking about other religions. I'm even speaking about this Christianity. That if you go to them and you want to speak to them about God, the first thing they will tell you is, I already go to church. I'm already a Christian. Like, I don't want to hear it. When you speak to them, they, they start to argue with you. Because they are rich in what? In religion. And when they are speaking to you about what makes them Christians, they don't speak about these things that we are talking about. They don't speak about the belief and the confession of Jesus as Lord. What they speak to you about is their routine. Oh, I pray every day. I read my Bible every day. I go to church every Sunday. I'm a worker. I go to this church. I go to that church. People like that are rich in what? In religion. Whether internally or externally. Whether they are in the body of Christ or they are outside. And some people's souls are so rich in religion that nothing new can come in. One of the things that I enjoy doing, and it has happened to me a bit in this estate, is that if somebody comes up to me to evangelize, I wait and I listen. First, to encourage the person. 
because I know that it took boldness for them to even approach me in the first, uh, first place. Second, because I see that as fellowship. Because the Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in their midst. So if you have Jesus inside you and I have Jesus inside me and you manage to jam me on the road, if I'm not in a hurry or anything, I'll listen to what you have to say. And it has happened to me a couple of times. There was a day I was going out and some people approached me and they said um, they would like to be my friend. And I was first confused, like, what's going on here? Because I was saying I was, I was in a hurry. Then I sensed that it's like these people want to preach to me. They are just using, because they were young people too, and there are a lot of tactics and a lot of ways that young people approach each other. And they said they want to be my friend, and they were just beating around the bush more. And I said, do you want to talk to me about Jesus? Then I said, yes. I said, hey, you should have said that one since, because as you were saying you want to be my friend, I was ready to leave you people. But if it's Jesus, hey, you have my attention now. And they spoke, and we had a good time. We spent like 10, 15 minutes, even more. I was going to home affairs to buy something. And we talked and talked, and they spoke to me, and I spoke back to them. And I encouraged them to in what they were doing. And we finished and we left. Because I learned something from them even that day. I don't know everything. And if you are not poor in spirits, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And some people are so rich or full in their own religious standing or their religious buoyancy that nothing else can enter them. Poverty of spirit. Some people are rich in morality. They think they are the best. They see themselves as so good. They see something happen to someone, something unfortunate happen to somebody else, and they look at that situation and say, well, it can never be me, Shah. Like, I can't bring my, I can't stoop so low that that thing will happen to me. On what strength are you basing that statement on? Is it you? Some people have become so rich in morality. They will never see the kingdom of heaven. I've heard people tell me I'm a very disciplined and principled person. That's how I am. And nothing you're saying to them about this kingdom enters them. Because they already have riches inside their soul. In their feelings, in the way that they think. In their decisions. They're already rich. Their rational spirit is full. Their soul is full. Some people are rich in knowledge. They know. And there's nothing that you can tell them. They already know it. Remember one of the reasons why when I was younger, my parents fought me in this life. Is before they say anything, I'll say, I know. Like before they say, I, I know, I know. And it took the Holy Spirit had to correct that thing out of me. Because I realized I didn't just do it with them. I also did it with like other people. Someone pointed it out to me one day. And I had to sit down and I had to, what do you even know, sir? People are so rich in knowledge that they cannot take anything new. Their minds are not open to the things of God because they are stuck in what they know. 
So like I said, this is necessary both for receiving salvation and for maintaining it. Because before someone will stand up and say what? That they want to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have to be poor in spirit. It means they must have come to a point where their knowledge has failed them. Their own morality has failed them. Their own sense of religion has failed them. Their own sense of sufficiency has failed them. That is what will bring you to the point where you say you need Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Even in your walk with Jesus, if you don't maintain this poverty of spirit, Christ cannot continue to fill you up. You won't grow. You just remain where you are. Because you've gotten satisfied with what you already have. So you have to ensure that on a constant basis that you purge yourself of anything that you think you are. Whatever you think you have achieved. And this was what Paul was speaking about when he said, when he was talking about the race he is running. That he's forgetting the things that are behind and looking forward to the things that are ahead. That does not just cover failure alone. It also covers success. That you don't become full in your spirit of your own achievements. God will never give you anything new. He won't. You have to forget them. You have to empty yourself. Empty your thoughts. Don't think that there's nothing more to learn. We spoke about David here before. And how... David had to fight the same battle twice in a short period of time. And the first time David went, God told David to attack them up front in the valley. And the Bible says that the enemies, they recouped and they came back again. And if it was us, naturally, we'll say, well, God told me to go like this the first time. So, obviously, God is telling me to do it like this again. And David went back to God and said, Lord, how should I do it now? And God said, okay, this time what you do is you would go about and surround them. And basically, you would ambush them from behind. These battles happened in the same verse. In the space of a very short time. That is someone that has poverty in his decisions. That does not make the assumption that just because God has guided him in a particular direction, that God is going to guide him in that same direction tomorrow. Just because God told him to approach a problem in a particular way does not mean that that's how God is going to tell him to approach him again, approach it again. And you have to be poor in spirit. Let's move to the next one. It said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a specific meaning to this mourning. It's a very specific meaning. Because you might just think, okay, it just means anybody that's sad, right? Or anyone that anything happens to that is bad. They will be comforted. Every single thing that is spoken about in this particular verse has to do with religion. Has to do with our relationship with God. 
And if you check, if you check the Septuagint and you check old Hebrew and Greek texts, you will find that the specific connotation for mourning here has to do with being sorrowful about sin. Being sorrowful about what? About sin. And the word for comfort here specifically means calling to your side. So what that means is that when you see this word comfort here, what it actually means is that somebody is on another side and you bring that person to what? To your own side and then you what? You comfort the person. You're not the one that is moving. It's that person that is what? Moving. So if I'm going to describe this to you, it means that blessed are those who have sorrow for what? For their sins. Because if they do, they will be what? Pulled from where they are. To what? To where that person is. Who is the comforter? It's the Holy Spirit. Given to us through Jesus Christ. So essentially, those that mourn will be comforted. Those that feel genuine sorrow for sin in their lives would receive comfort from the Holy Spirit. This, this, this is not just about someone died and you are sad. No. That's not what the scripture is talking about. There's another scripture for that. It says rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, or mourn with them that mourn. That's a different context. But what Jesus is speaking about here is sorrow for sin. And when the Bible describes David as a man after God's heart, one of the reasons why David is described this way is because this was evident in his life. David was so sorrowful about this flesh and what it makes him to do. He wasn't perfect. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. But David lived with the revelation of things that we are enjoying today. He lived as a king. He also functioned as a priest. And we are kings and what? And priests. We also see this in the book of Romans when Paul is speaking in Romans 7. Before he gets to the point of victory in Romans 8 where he says, there is therefore now condemn no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends Romans 7 with what? Oh wretched man that I am. This was when Paul was speaking about the things that he would want to do. He could not do them. He was speaking about himself under the law before he got com the comfort of grace. So on the outside, when we're reading the story of Peter in the book of Acts, we might have seen him as a strong and stubborn man, right? Who Jesus picked up and sent to do his bidding. But Paul revealed to us in Romans 7 that he was a man that was filled with deep sorrow. That what Jesus did for him was a rescue from his own words, his own failures. Because even as he sincerely wanted to keep the law, he could not keep it. 
because his body could not keep it because his body was not regenerated and he did not have the spirit of God inside him. And if you read through Romans 7, you would read the frustrations of a man that was truly sorrowful about his own state. And what did Jesus do? Jesus found him. And you get to chapter 8 and he says, there is therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. As believers, we have to hate sin. Genuinely. You know, one of the problems that I have and one of the reasons why it's very difficult for our time or our generation to get over some things, to have victory over some things, addiction to different things, is because we have a watered-down water version of Christianity that treats some things that are truth as condemnation. We've so much diluted the Zobo, diluted, <laughs> diluted, diluted the gospel to the point that there's no place for godly sorrow. And yes, godly sorrow is scriptural. It's scriptural. So people get over things way too easily that they do not allow the Holy Spirit to guide them, to actually lead them so that they will not enter that particular temptation again. So we are taught to say what? God forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. And God will forgive you and cleanse you. Because it's his promise and the blood is always available for you. But that's one part of the story. There's still a life that you have to live. There's still you avoiding the pitfall that got you into that mess in the first place. And you can't avoid it if you just push it out of your mind and say, oh yes, it didn't happen. The Holy Spirit does some things in our hearts. And sometimes those things are not pleasant experiences. The writer of Hebrews talked about a man who sins, who has God as somebody who is grieving the Holy Spirit that is what? Within him. And trust me, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you yourself, you are sorrowful. Because he's in you. He's not separated from you. That's not guilt. It's not guilt. Guilt drives you away from God's presence. Conviction brings you to him. And it's not supposed to be pleasant. It's not supposed to feel good. You're not supposed to be happy about it. It's supposed to break you down. And even if it brings you to the point of tears and you're sorrowful, it's bringing you closer. It's not pushing you away. It's those people that will be comforted. That's how you overcome. Because the Holy Spirit will now start to guide you and tell you and really make you understand the consequences of what you're doing. And the pitfalls and how you shouldn't do it again. He does this in your heart when you dwell 
but we've been we brought our speed into the gospel. This is our fast life into the gospel. Agile Christianity, like agile project management. Where everything is done with speed. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of patience. It doesn't work that way. You need to see you need to see the beauty of what Jesus is saying here. It's not supposed to be rosy all the time. Because there's a place for mourning so that there will be comfort. Not mourning in that you experience disaster. Mourning for this flesh that would always push you occasionally to grieve God. And you should not just overlook it and say, eh, it's the flesh. God forgive me. No, no. If, if something now starts to become a repeated pattern in your life, you have to check why. You have to dwell on it. Not because you are feeling guilty and running away from God. But because you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And that should do something in you. It can't be empty shells. That's the morning that we're speaking about here. So that the comforter will do his work. And this is how we live above sin. Because we have to live above sin. But it doesn't come by like bread and butter Christianity. That anything that is hurtful must be from the devil. If that's your definition of Christianity, then you need to go and study the temptation of Jesus Christ. Because everything that the devil tempted Jesus with was pleasant. He tempted him with food for his body. He tempted him with um, fame because he tempted him with popularity, ambition. Jump and the Lord will catch you. Basically, he was telling him, instigate a miracle if you are the son of God. Fashion one by going and jumping down and the angels will catch you. And then your fame will spread abroad. He tempted him with pleasurable things but they were all not God's will. So if all pleasure is in the will of God, it follows that not all pain is from the devil. And this is tough. You may not want to hear it, but it's the truth. And this is one of those sections. Amen. The third thing he says here is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. The word meek here means gentleness. Meek and gentle can be used inter- interchangeably. Or having a mild disposition. And there's something that I want to say. Meekness in every single meaning that you will check. 
And this is a mistake that people make. Meekness does not say anything about weakness or strength. So a meek person is not necessarily weak. Neither is a meek person necessarily strong. That's not the point. The point is in your what? In your disposition. Because there are people that equate meekness to weakness. No. You can be strong. You should be strong. Yet meek. There is no description of meekness that has anything to do with whether you are strong or you are weak. It's all about your disposition. And there's meekness. When we speak about meekness, it's towards two people. The first is meekness towards God. And what that means for us is that we accept that his dealings with us are for our good. And we don't resist him. We accept what? That his dealings with us are good. And we do not resist him. Then there's meekness towards man. And what does that mean? Is that we accept the frailties of humanity and we do not begrudge them for it. Neither do we intimidate them with our own strength. I'll repeat that. We accept the frailties of man and we don't begrudge them for it. Neither do we intimidate them with our own strength. Moses was called the meekest man on earth. And there are reasons why. It's because he did these two things. And the moment of his mistake was when he walked away from this thing. That was the, the moment of his mistake. The first was that Moses accepted God's will was ultimately for the good of him and Israel. No matter how tough the time was, he was the only one that trusted that God was doing good. And he did not resist God. But at the same time, Moses for most of his life never begrudged Israel for their weakness. There was a time that God told Moses, let me kill all of them. I will start a new Israel, new nation with you. If people have frustrated us to that point, I'm sure you will say thank you, answered prayer. <laughs> answered prayer, these people are too stressful. God, eh, you are the one that said it too, it's not me. <laughs> Let it not look like it's my own idea. You're the one that said it. Okay, you can do it. What did Moses tell God? He said, what would our, what will our enemies say? Like, what does this say about your own great name if all these people die? He never begrudged Israel for their weaknesses. Even before God, he will keep defending and defending and defending them. And he never for once used his position of strength to intimidate them. That's what it means to be meek before God and before man. It's gentleness is about your disposition. You can be a strong man or a strong woman and yet be meek. There are Christians that don't know what it means to be meek. And a lot of times you might not even know you have a meekness problem 
until they give you small power. Small power, not plenty power. Just small power, authority over somebody or something. And that's when you know, as man, God, I need to deal with myself. Whether in your office or whatever, just made you the head of one team or something. That's when you know that you are not meek. From the governor of my class and in school. And there are a lot of things that my classmates will tell me, I, I can't take it if I was Billy. They'll say it publicly. Like, see, if people are lucky, it's Billy. If it's, if it's, I can't take all this thing that people are doing. Somebody told someone point blank that if you do anyhow, I'll have removed you from this group since. <laughs> since I'll have removed you. <laughs> I'll have removed you from this group. Why are you be talking to people anyhow like that? Different people, different problems, different personalities. And sometimes personalities will always clash. But I would not ever do the governor thing. I, no, it's not necessary. That doesn't mean I'm not in a position of strength. It's just God that is helping me. Because there are other people that will handle this place and they'll use that position to raise funds. It happens. It happens. Small, small power. They go to church, they are speaking in tongues, though. That's not the problem. <laughs> A small power, small authority, you could see. And that's the problem God had with Aaron and Miriam at the point. They were leaders also in Israel. Miriam was, they were older than Moses, two of them. Miriam was a prophetess. Aaron was a priest. But in terms of their dealings with Israel and their dealings with Moses, their brother, they were not meek. And this is what it means to be meek. And the reward of meekness is interesting because what does God, Jesus say? He says they will inherit the earth. The reason they will inherit the earth because it's only meek people that can be trusted to actually take care of the earth. And not this earth. It's the earth to come. And all of us that will be there in Jesus' name, we are going to be meek people anyway. Because you can't get there if you're not meek. So the last part of this heart thing I was speaking about. It says, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. The word hunger... And the word thirst here, both have to do with longing. There's a desperation to it, and it's deliberate. It's deliberately used. Even in the physical realm, you know the difference when, between I feel like eating. I just want to put something in my mouth, and I'm hungry. And I'm famished. They are not the same thing. There's a huge difference. There's a difference between I just want, I'm craving 
something. I'm craving something. Craving sweets, craving biscuits, craving kimishi, which I crave sometimes. There's a difference between that and I am hungry. There's a difference between that and I am famished. In the temptation of Jesus Christ, when the Bible says that, and he fasted for 40 days, and he hungered, if you check the meaning of that hunger, it's not this, like, you wake up in the morning and you want to eat. The actual English word that describes the hunger that Jesus was facing was that he was famished. He was famished. He was completely gone. There was a desperation to the hunger that he had. That's the same word that is used here. The exact same word. That there needs to be a desperation in our longing for righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness here, we talk about both dimensions of righteousness. Both the imputing of righteousness and the practice of righteousness. Imputing in that there needs to be a desperation for the imputing of righteousness before anyone can be saved. Because essentially, you cannot desire Jesus if you don't know what you are. And that's why I said that these things are things that need to be present, both for those who are about to receive salvation and for those who already have salvation to maintain their salvation. Nobody comes to Jesus without recognizing the need for him. That's what the gospel is supposed to be. The gospel is supposed to, the gospel message is supposed to bring solution to the need of humanity. And that's what evangelism is supposed to be. You're going to tell someone that they need Jesus, but you cannot tell them they need Jesus without letting them know why. Man has to see himself in the state that he is in and has to realize that he cannot come out of the state that he is in by his own power and has to know that the only person that can bring him out of the state that he is in is Jesus. Those things happen before anybody gets saved. Genuinely. And sometimes we have situations that where people are guilted to come in to receive altar call. So someone is given an altar call in, and that's happened in school before and they're just guilt-tripping you. They're not preaching the gospel. Just guilt-tripping you, speaking to you. The message of hell doesn't save people. It might save people for a while. It might scare them. And they might come out out of fear. But if man does not know his true state, he's going to go back. And I, I saw this thing a lot happen, like a lot. Altar calls where it's fear, fear, fear. This is, this is not showing them this is your state. This is why you need Jesus. Because that's where it starts from. Man has to know what is missing in him. And accept him. But the words that Jesus uses here are words of desperation. So bringing it back to the practice of righteousness, for those of us that have received Jesus, 
And we have righteousness imputed on, upon us by faith. The same way it was imputed on our father Abraham. And we can say, yes, we have a right standing with God. But that's the gift. It's still the practice. Which has to do with what we do on a daily basis. So the question for you and me is, is there a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our lives? Or do we treat righteousness as just a craving? Like, oh, I'm craving cake today. I'm craving ice cream. And you go and you take the cake and ice cream. And when you satisfy that craving, you move on to your regular programming. Is that how righteousness is to us? Is it just something that we just remember occasionally? And maybe for one day, it's very strong in our hearts. And we live right. But when that day is passed, we just relax and go back to our normal program. We can't afford to be like that. Because essentially, the reward for this hunger is that you will be fully satisfied. You see, the Holy Spirit is just on standby. Literally on standby. Waiting for you to want more of him and to be willing to take the steps you need to take to live the way he wants you to live and once you have that hunger and that thirst he steps in he steps in it's not about you now it's about him he's just waiting he's waiting for you He's waiting for you to get to a point where you are like, this is the only way. And is this way or no other way? He's waiting for you to burn every single bridge that you have to your past or to whatever it is that you came from that you could go back to. He's waiting for you to take drastic measures like that. Like Jesus asked Peter and the disciples when they left him, when all the other disciples left him. And he asked Peter, and he says, aren't you going too? And Peter, the first thing he said to Jesus was, where will we go? Where will we go? Because there was nowhere else to return to. They literally have abandoned everything, abandoned their business to follow him. Abandoned the people they knew in the past to follow him. They had been seen with Jesus enough times to be rebels and outcasts in the temple that they can't even go back there because the Pharisees and Sadducees already know them with Jesus. It's, it's kind of too late for them now. They've identified with him permanently. They cannot go back. They've been on this journey too far. So Peter said, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. How much is your hunger and thirst for righteousness, for righteous living? We don't talk about it enough. We don't teach about it nearly enough. Living right before God. How much do you desire it? How much do you really want to Forget ministry for now. Forget calling or no calling. 
Forget there's a gift that is operating in your life. Throw all those things away. That's not what we're speaking about here. Talking about your life. Your relationship with God. Because this is where he starts from. And that's why I said it's a heart work. It's a heart thing. How much do you hunger and thirst to practice righteousness? To live a life of righteousness? How much do you desire it? Is this something that is fleeting? Or is this something that is constantly burning in you? This is the question for you today. These are the questions we have to answer. Because it's a hard thing. four questions. Is there poverty in your soul? Or have you filled it up with something that is not letting Jesus put more in you? Are you ever filled with godly sorrow? When you fall, when you miss a step, or do you just rush and shake it off and say, yes, God has forgiven me? Rather than dealing with the root cause of that problem or that addiction or that habit and letting the Holy Spirit lead you, however painful it might be, into your freedom. Are you meek? Do you accept everything that God has for you as good? Or are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Are you meek with your fellow men? Do you not do you begrudge people for their weaknesses? Do you hold it against them? Do you oppress people with your position of strength? And are you desperate to live righteous before God? These are not about actions. These are matters of your heart. All these questions cannot be answered by your words. They are answered through the content of your heart. That's why the Bible says you should guard your heart with all diligence. Because out of it flows the issues of life. All the other things we'll be speaking about in this series will be products of these things we have laid foundation on. Because all the other Beatitudes, as we call them, are related to this first four. And over the, this month, we're going to be looking at them. And God will help us in Jesus' name. I want us to rise up.